Turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12. If you were in our small groups, you were already there and uh, heard some, there was some good discussion. And uh, given the topic, you'll see why. We're so excited to continue through the gospel of Mark, uh, seeing Christ's journey to the cross. And we find ourselves in the Passion Week. In fact, in our passage today, it's Tuesday of the Passion Week, just about three days before he goes to the cross. And in chapter 12, we see Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders and being peppered with questions, questions to tempt him, to test him, to give them reason to arrest him. And today is a particularly sticky question. Bring up the topic of government and you will see two types of people. Those who love a good debate and jump right in, and those who would prefer a root canal than arguing (laughs) about government and running away. Everyone has an opinion about government. Perhaps you experienced that even during our small group hour. Strong opinions. In fact, friendships have been strained or even ended over disagreements related to government. Now, I'm, I'm committed to never turning this pulpit into a political platform. I have no intention of doing that this morning. We're here to proclaim God's word and his gospel, not political policies. But closely connected to the topic of government is the issue of authority, which is being challenged uh, to Jesus in this passage. And we must ask the question, what what obligation do we have to government, and how how does that connect with our obligation to God? In fact, I've received three or four questions for our Sunday evening series on what does the Bible say related in one way or the other to the Christian's relationship to government. So I'll save a lot of the sticky and specific uh, issues to those sermons later on. We would be missing the point of this passage, however, if we spent the morning debating politics. Because that's not the point of the passage this morning. This passage invites us not to fight about government, but to see the authority of Jesus and his claim over our entire lives. Let's read this passage again. This is in the setting of the religious leaders going one by one to Jesus and asking him questions to test him. And we pick up our reading in verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. And they, meaning the Sanhedrin, sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, We know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teaches the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar, or not? Shall we give, or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, and I may see it. And they brought it. And they saith unto them, Who is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you guide us in your word this morning. Pray that your truth would be at the, at the foreground. That we would see your truth above all else, that we would see Jesus and his authority above all else, and that we might ask ourselves how we might devote our lives to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
I mentioned this is the Passion Week, just a few days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And here are the religious leaders coming to him, asking him questions. And what better way to trap someone in their words to ask them their view on politics? We see here, particularly, that Jesus is facing off with the Pharisees and the Herodians. And I just want to kind of set the stage for why this particular question was so difficult and such a good trap before we get into the message that Jesus has for us. We see, first of all, an unlikely alliance. We read in verse 13 that they sent the Pharisees and Herodians. Who was the they in this passage? It's the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders that Jesus had just confronted in the previous verses through the parable of the tenants. When he said that they killed the the, the servants coming to the garden and ultimately killed the son of the garden owner. And Jesus had just confronted these, the Sanhedrin, who were now plotting his arrest. And these leaders send to Jesus two groups. Some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in his talk. Why is it important to consider these two groups. Because these two groups had absolutely nothing in common. The Pharisees were kind of like the religious right. They were anti-Rome. They were ultra-conservatives. Well, well at the, on the other hand, the Herodians were pro-Roman. They were Herod sympathizers. They were culturally and politically liberal. They were open to the influences of Rome. What are these two groups doing, teaming up, against Jesus Christ? Well, it's because they found one point of common ground. Hatred of Jesus. They may have hated Jesus for different reasons, but they hated him nonetheless. And you know, it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum. There is one thing that unites us all. We're all under sin. We are all in opposition to the authority of Jesus over our lives. And in a political climate, which is often framed as good guys versus bad guys, friends versus enemies, we all need to realize that before God, we all, right and left, are enemies of the cross of Christ. We all stand in opposition to the authority of Jesus over our lives, and it's what unites us, just as the Pharisees and Herodians teamed up, regardless of their differences, over their opposition to Christ. And so we see these two groups, otherwise sworn enemies with nothing in common, linking arms because of their common enemy. And they come to trap him because they're looking for an excuse to arrest him. So we see this unlikely alliance, and then we see some flattering words. You notice they don't get to the question right away, do they? They really butter him up. They lead with flattery. They call him teacher. They say, we know that you are true. We know that you don't care about people's opinion. These opposing sides come to Jesus and they butter him up by saying, all right, Jesus, we're about to ask you a question, but we know that you'll be completely objective in your answer. We know you're not afraid to make any one of us upset with your answer because you don't care about anyone's opinion. They continue on, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You're going to tell it like it is, Jesus. You're a truth teller. You're on God's side. So they try to butter him up. They try to puff him up. Now, ironically, everything they just said about Jesus is true. Jesus is the teacher. He he does know truth. He doesn't care about people's opinions. He's not swayed by appearance. And he truly teaches the word of God. But everything they say is coming from a place of hypocrisy. Why do they have this approach? 
Well, think about it, right? When, when someone applauds you for your objectivity and your honesty and your fairness before asking a question, what do you want to do? You want to prove them right in your answer. They're trapping him into giving an either-or answer. We know you're going to answer well. This is an attempt to keep Jesus from running away from an answer to this question. And in their minds, any answer he gives will trap him. And a non-answer will discredit him. So we see this flat, these flattering words trying to get him to answer in a way that traps him. And then that leads into this impossible question. What is the question? He's, they ask him this. Is it lawful? To pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus, is it option A or is it option B? You want an ultimate lose-lose situation? Try answering the question, how should a Christian relate to the government? There is no answer to that question that won't make somebody mad. And particularly the the Pharisees and the Herodians, since they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, one of them will be upset with his answer. And so they ask him about this tax, this tax to Caesar. Now, what is this tax? I think it's important for us to understand the setting and the nature of this tax and the culture around it to understand the, the, the weight of this question. The Greek word translated tax is really the word for census or a poll tax. Now, if you know your Christmas story you know that there might be a connection here. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read this. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. This was instituted in A.D. 6. And this was the tax that they were asking Jesus about. This was a census tax. It was one denarius. Israel at this time was under the authority of Rome. And while Rome let them have their own religious leaders and practices, Rome appointed their king, Herod, and imposed this census tax, this poll tax. And as I mentioned, it wasn't much. It It was one denarius, which is one day's wage. Wouldn't you like it if your taxes were that low? But it really wasn't the issue, the, the controversy wasn't all about just the, the tax itself. But inscribed on that denarius was these words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The Jews most likely saw this as blasphemous in cooperating with such a tax to support a Caesar who saw himself as divine went against their conscience. And you'll notice, they ask him, is it lawful to pay this tax? Now, they can't be talking about lawful in the eyes of the government because the answer to that question is obvious. That word for lawful means right before God. Does God want us to pay this tax? Would it be going against God's will if we gave this tax to Caesar? It was wildly unpopular in Israel. Now, of course, we have no common ground there, right? We love taxes, right? <laughs> but it was wildly unpopular in Israel. And I want to give you a sense of just how unpopular this census tax, this poll tax, was. So I'm going to stop and give you a bit of a history lesson. But I think this history lesson is really important. 
because it, it adds a lot of this, add to this loaded question with a lot of emotions that attach to it. This was not just an objective, simple yes or no question. There was a lot undergirding this question. When the census tax was instituted in 86, there was a zealot and a Pharisee whose name was Judas the Galilean, not Judas Iscariot, Judas the Galilean, and he sparked a revolt against this tax. He was a revolutionary. And in fact, we read about this Judas the Galilean in Acts 5, verse 37. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. There's Luke chapter 2. And he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And this uprising was in response to this census. So Judas the, Judas the Galilean gathered together in opposition and tried to overthrow and push back against the Roman government because of this census tax. There's a Jewish-Roman historian named Josephus who was born in A.D. 37 and lived till A.D. 100. And if you kind of know your dates, he was basically born right after Jesus died. And so he's right there in the same context, and he writes about this situation, this time in Israel's history when this unpopular census tax was given. And we read this. Now, Cyrenius... A Roman senator, that's the same Cyrenius we find in Luke 2, 2. And one who had gone through other magistrates had passed through them till he had been consul. And one who, on other accounts, was of great dignity, came at this time into Syria with a few others, being sent by Caesar to be a judge of that nation and to take an account of their substance. And here we see the Jews' response. Josephus, the historian, says this. The Jews, although at the beginning they took to the report of a taxation heinously, yet they did leave off any further opposition to it. Yet, there was one Judas, a Galilite or a Galilean, of a city whose name was Gamala, who, taking with him Sajuk, a Pharisee, became zealous to draw them to a revolt, who both said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery and exhorted the nation to assert their liberty. The historian Josephus later describes Judas and his followers this way, these men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. Josephus also describes how Judas convinced people to follow him. He said that they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. Can you see the context, the emotions undergirding this tax? Just recently, in their eyes, there's this man named Judas the Galilean who rises up and says, assert your liberty. He says that taxation is slavery. We only submit to God. We must fight for our liberty. To submit to mortal men is cowardice. And Judas, in fact, did rise up with his followers, and it led to a bloody, violent revolt. And as we read in Acts 5.37, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. These Jews opposed the tax, not because it was too much, but because they saw it as a conflict of allegiance. Judas was a zealot, but he was also a Pharisee, one of their own, who died for liberty. This is a loaded question. 
And the death of Judas the Galilean, in fact, would later serve as inspiration for another Jewish revolt in AD 66. They, they picked up his banner and they said, just like Judas the Galilean did this, let's, let's join in cause with him and fight. And so really, if Jesus said, answered this question by saying, pay your taxes, what is Jesus actually saying? Judas died for nothing. And that would anger the people. That would anger the crowd. And this is why this, con- this question is so clever, because they knew if Jesus answered by saying, pay the tax, then the crowd would revolt. But by saying, don't pay your taxes, he would, may win the crowd, but now he would be in danger of arrest from the Roman government who would want to squelch a potential second uprising. Either way, it's a lose-lose situation. There's no good answer here. So how does Jesus answer the question of God and government? Well, how would you answer this question? As we see Jesus' answers to this question, we see his authority reaffirmed. But we also see his profound wisdom and insight. Verse 15, he saw through their flattery, saw their hypocrisy. He knew their motives. He says, why do you test me? I know where this question is coming from. And so he asks them to bring him a denarius, which is the census tax. Bring me the coin that you are to give in taxes. And he asks them a simple question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Like picking up a lost name tag on the ground, Jesus looks at the name and the face inscribed and asks, who does this belong to? And they say, Caesar's. The coin has his face on it. The coin has his name on it. And Jesus' answer gives profound wisdom to Christians as we consider the issue of God and government. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And really, you know what the operative word in this response is? It would be the word and. And. The Pharisees and the Herodians probably would have replaced and with or. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's or to God the things that are God's. You can submit to Caesar or you can submit to God. That's definitely how Judas the Galilean would have framed it and did frame it. That might have been how Caesar would have framed it since he considered himself divine. But Jesus says and and you are to do both. And so for our first point, probably my most unpopular point in all of my years of preaching, give back to government. (laughs) Jesus shatters this dichotomy and he points to an obligation. The word render means to pay back what you owe. This is the language of obligation. He says this is not a donation. This is not a voluntary offering. This is an obligation. Romans 13, 5-7 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says it's his coin. If he's asking for it, give it back. This is the economic system that you are in. This is the governmental structure that you are under. 
Be good citizens and pay your taxes, he says. Now, I'm sure Jesus knew that there were zealots all around whose national identity and personal pride were threatened by this census tax. But he's saying it's not slavery. It's not degrading. Jesus is not a political revolutionary. He did not, ask, he did not say, well, it depends on what Caesar is planning on using those taxes for. He says, it's Caesar's. He asked for it. So give it back. Now, we, are, we as Americans are, are free to debate and disagree about things like taxes and those rich men north of Richmond who like to uh, talk about our dollar, who, which is taxed to no end. And we, we take pride in our work and our liberty and our country. But when those things become our very identity, what happens? Then something like a tax is a threat, not just to our wallet, but to our very soul. Is a human government able able to rob you of your identity and dignity? As a Christian, it should not. We see God in government. For a lot of people, they see God in government like this. Two different spheres of authority, and it's either or. And if we conclude that we conclude that if we submit to our government, it keeps me from submitting to God. Or we may conclude that submitting to God excuses me from submitting to government. But we're looking at the circles wrong. Jesus puts the circles together and makes them like this. Submitting to government does not keep you from submitting to God. And submitting to God does not excuse you from submitting to government. God is over all things. God is king and ruler over all. The Bible clearly says that human government is a legitimate sphere in our lives that we must must submit to. Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur, incur judgment. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13-14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and praise those who do good. Judas the Galilean told his followers that if they put up with a Roman tax and submit to mortal men as their lords, then they were cowards. But Jesus says, just give him back his denarius. Because there's so much more, there's a much more important obligation that you have. We read in Luke 12, 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so he looks at the census tax and he says, it's got his face on it, give it back. But most importantly, give back to God. Jesus does not answer by simply saying, pay your taxes. That would cause an uproar. He continues and says, just as you render to Caesar what is his... Render to God what is His. And this shows us, this reminds us, that government is not God. While the authority of government has its limits, the authority of God does not. Caesar may own your taxes, but he does not own you. Government does not take God's place. And just as you act appropriately in your sphere as a citizen, you have an obligation to the God of the universe. And as we saw earlier, that sphere swallows up every other sphere. And that's why Scripture says that when the two are in conflict, we must obey God 
rather than men. But just as one person may neglect his duty to government out of his professed allegiance to God, another person might neglect his duty to God out of his allegiance to government. But I want you to notice something really important. How did Jesus indicate what belonged to Caesar? Whose image and likeness is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image and likeness is on you? God's. Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And the word for image is the exact same word used to describe the image on the coin. Whose likeness and inscription is on you? You are made in his image, after his likeness. And so Jesus refutes the idea that submission to government is somehow a compromise to your allegiance to God by holding up both truths at the same time. He says, render to Caesar your silver and render to God your soul. Give taxes to the government. That does not threaten your dignity or identity because those are only found in God. It would have been wrong to withhold from government the taxes that were due. But it would be far greater wrong to withhold from God the allegiance he is due. Your life is God's. He asked for it. Now give it back. We cling to our money and we push back against the government's claim over it. And that can dominate our thinking to the point so much that that we miss the far greater problem. And what's that far greater problem? We cling to our own lives and we push back against God's claim over it. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. Regardless of your political leanings, regardless of who you're voting for, we are all guilty of holding back from God what is due him. He is our creator, who he stamped his image on our soul. You were made in his likeness. But when sin entered the world, we marred that image. How do we mar that image? Well, by seeking to shake off God's claim over our lives and forge our own path. And just like a man who refuses to pay taxes because he doesn't think the government has any claim over it, we refuse to give God our lives because we don't think he has any claim over it. We ignore him and and live our life our own way. And that's the very reason why Jesus came to earth. He came... To collect his due. He came to win back what is his. And as we read earlier in Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to reclaim his image. And to do that, he had to die in your place. He had to pay the fine. As we read in Colossians 2:14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He paid for our sin. He ransomed our souls. And by doing this, he claims ownership over us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Give back to God what is God's. You have no right to keep it to yourself. And so here stands these 
Herodians and these Pharisees, which they think they've got the ultimate gotcha question, the answer with a, a question that has no right answer to, a question that is sure to land Jesus in prison. And Jesus responds with such wisdom and such profundity that they respond to him with marvel. They're standing face to face with the one who was about to pay for the sins of the world. They were trying to trap Jesus with a question about taxes, while all the while they were refusing God's claim over their lives. If only they had realized that the man they were talking to was their only hope. That it was Jesus who gave them liberty. Not a zealot, not a revolutionary, not a new form of government, not a tax or lack thereof, but Jesus Christ. If, that, that if they'd only give back to God what is God's, their very lives, they would find eternal peace and lasting joy. As we consider the, the story of Judas the Galilean who led this revolt, what was he doing? He was tying liberty, peace, and joy to something related to government, to a tax. And saying that this government is robbing me of my liberty. This government is robbing me of my joy. And Jesus says they can't do that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. We see at the conclusion of our passage that they marveled at him. And this means they were completely and utterly amazed. And in this context, it was almost a begrudging admiration. They didn't want to be impressed. But boy, they were. This internal admission of, oh boy, that was good. That was impressive. But if only that amazement had led to repentance. Will it lead you to repentance? The far greater question is not taxes. It is not government. Give government what's owed them. But give to God what is God's. Are you holding back, not your taxes, but your lives? You holding back your life from the one who bought it, the one who has claim over it, the one who has only right over your life. And the scripture says, if you do, if you give back to God what is God's, if you come to him in humble repentance and faith, that he gives you a new heart, that he forgives your sins, that he gives you newness of life. And all you must do is come to him. Christian, what are you holding back from God? Are you giving back to God's what is God's? Are there portions of your life that you're just clinging on to? You're hiding? It's like the spiritual equivalent of not reporting it to the IRS, right? You're just kind of keeping it hidden away, tucked in a mattress somewhere. Where in your soul are you holding back from God? You're saying God can have claim over this, this, and this, but, but not this. This is mine. We have claim over nothing. Jesus has claim over everything. Will the amazement of Jesus' wisdom and authority lead you to repentance? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace. Where we can spend our days and our hours debating and bickering and arguing over government and politics, all the while neglecting our own soul. Lord, I pray that wherever anyone lands politically, that they would see their ultimate need is Jesus Christ. 
that regardless of politics, we all stand as sinners before you. That government does not save us. Our money does not save us. Only you save us. Lord, we consider the claim you have over our lives and we pray as people made in your image with your likeness stamped on our hearts that we would give back to you what is due.